Several years ago, I was teaching a theology class, and with that class, I had some assigned reading. We uh, started by studying the doctrine of God. We were studying His attributes, how God is, is, is like us, how we're like Him, and, and how He is different from us in, in every way. And a few weeks in, I had a lady contact me, and she let me know that she was discouraged by the reading. She told me that she was discouraged by all the things she did not know, and she felt as if everyone in the class was, was ahead of her and, and was talking about how challenging the reading was. So I asked her to tell me what she was having difficulty with, and she began explaining to me the different attributes of God, and she was doing so in a way that was accurate and on point theologically. I could tell that she had spent a whole lot of time studying the materials, and I asked her, why are you discouraged? You're learning so much. You're growing in your knowledge of who God is. And she told me she was discouraged by the amount she did not know. And, and she was discouraged by the fact that, that there was so much she didn't know and, and that she didn't have it all down. And I explained to her that what's important is the fact that she is making progress. She is moving from where she is forward in her faith. Though people are at a lot of different places than her spiritually, I explained to her the reason for that is because we've all started the race at different points in time, right? For God. God doesn't expect us to jump from where we are to the end all at once. Our, our growth in godliness is a process, and at times it's a painfully slow process. None of us are perfect. Praise be to God, He sent Christ to be that for us. Amen? But when we give our lives over to Him, when we trust in Christ alone for salvation, though we are not perfect, nor will we be, this side of heaven, there should be progress. Believers, wherever you are in your race, for God, you should be making progress. You should be moving from where you are forward in your faith. You should be working out what God is working in you. You should be advancing spiritually. It was John Newton who once said this. Look at this quote up on the board, uh, up on the screen, up on the board. <laughs> That's old school. Up on the screen. He said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You should be able to say that along with Newton here, believers. If you have your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 4. In our chapter for today, we're continuing our series through Esther, and we're going to see Mordecai and Esther begin to make progress in this chapter. They begin to move forward in the faith. They begin to move in the direction that God has called for them to move as his people. They begin to make huge strides. Let's first look at Mordecai. Look at Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We're told this, when Mordecai learned 
all that had been done. Now let's stop there for just a minute. If you are new with us here this morning or you've been out, we got to get you caught up in the story, okay? We're in the book of Esther, and in this book, there is a king named Xerxes, also called Ahasuerus in some of your Bibles. A few things have happened already with, with Xerxes. We learn in chapter 1 that he rules over this Persian empire. He's the most powerful, most impressive, influential, and affluent ruler on the planet at this time. In this story, he is ruling from his palace in Susa, which is modern-day Iran. He spends a great deal of time just sitting up on his great throne, ruling like a god. In chapter 1 of the story, he gets upset because his wife, the queen, refuses to obey him. What he wants her to do is he wants to have her come in during this party where he's got a bunch of drunk guys and he wants to bring his beautiful queen in so the guys can just gawk at her and lust after her and be envious of the, the king who has this beautiful queen. Well, Vashti said, nope, I'm not doing that. And so he gets mad and he gets rid of her. Four years later, chapter 2 of Esther, he held this enormous competition. Hundreds of women are invited from all over the empire and they are given spa treatments for a year to, com to compete at a chance of being the queen of Persia. And one of these young women in the competition is a Jewish girl by the name of Esther. Her and her cousin and father, he adopted her, Mordecai, are living in Susa, away from God's people, away from his place of worship. So get this, Esther is an orphan Jewish girl living in a foreign land. Very, very unlikely person here. She's the one who is chosen to be the queen. Now, there is nothing really impressive about Esther at the beginning of the story other than the fact that she is beautiful. Nothing spiritually impressive and certainly nothing impressive about Mordecai either at the beginning of the story. They are in the shadows. They keep their Jewishness a secret. They are living alongside pagans in hiding. Okay, so, so we don't have anything really impressive about them at the beginning of the story. But we first see Mordecai begin to make a change. We begin to see him emerge a little bit, step out of the shadows at the end of Esther chapter 2 when he discovers a plot at the king's gate to kill the king. There are two eunuchs of the king. They're making a plan to assassinate the king. Mordecai hears about it, lets Esther know. Esther lets the king know the king's life is spared. And it is recorded in the records that Mordecai is the one who, who made this plot known. You've got to remember that for later. In Esther chapter 3, we learn that five more years has passed, and we're introduced to another character, a new character, a man by the name of Haman. The king promotes Haman to a position that is the second most powerful position in the empire under the king. He passes over the one who saved his life, Xerxes did, Mordecai, and he chooses Haman. And Haman, we are told, is an Agagite. And we talked about last week that the Agagites were longtime enemies of the Jews. They did not like one another. And this feud goes all the way back to two brothers, 
Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis. Haman is a wicked guy, and he, like Xerxes, loves power and glory and public recognition, and he receives it from most everyone, everywhere he goes, everyone except for Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down. He refuses to show Haman respect. And he doesn't just do this once. He does it over and over again. And when asked why, he says, because I am a Jew. So what does Haman do? He says, okay, you won't bow. I'm not only going to have you killed, but I'm going to have everyone who is of the Jewish race killed along with you. All of God's people. Now I would say the punishment doesn't fit the crime, wouldn't you? One man doesn't bow, so an entire race of people is sentenced to be put to death. Haman is the first Hitler. We said that last week. But he doesn't have the power in himself to, to push this through. He's got to bring it before the king. So he does, and Haman manipulates Xerxes into giving his stamp of approval on this wicked edict. He gives him his signet ring, the king does, and this decree is signed, stamped, sealed, and delivered all out, all across the Persian Empire. And then Xerxes and Haman sit down to have cocktails. Two wicked guys. So what we're told in Esther chapter 3, verse 15. And when this decree goes out, Mordecai hears about it. And we're going to learn today that he is going to do something about it. And we're also going to learn that when Esther finds out about this wicked decree, she is going to respond as well. We're going to look at both responses this morning, and we're going to look at how both make progress for God in this story. Notice first, Mordecai's growth in godliness. That's point number one. Look at verse one again. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Now, what is Mordecai doing here and why is he doing it? Well, context helps us. First, he's extremely upset. I don't believe you need to know anything about the context to understand that, right? Any of us would be in Mordecai's sandals. All of the Jewish people have been condemned to die, and they know it. They know the day. And so they're just sitting around waiting on this day to come. They have been given a death sentence, and this would have been terrifying. We talked about last week to the Jewish people. Think about it. If one of the most powerful rulers on the planet with one of the most powerful militaries signed a decree that said, you and I, we're going to be put to death. Our, our kids, our grandkids, parents, and, and grandparents on a certain day, you'd be a mess, wouldn't you? No, I would. But notice we're told Mordecai does something strange as well. He tore his clothes, and he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city to mourn publicly. Now, we might not respond in that way, right? That's a bit strange. But this is the way people showed grief in this day in the East. Whenever there was a, a famine or, or when a, an area was hit by a natural disaster, whenever there was a threat of death, 
There was mourning in this way. They would mourn in this way. They would wear this loose-fitting, dark-colored, coarse garment that was uncomfortable, and it looked terrible. And they would take ashes from the remains of a fire and they would throw it on themselves. At times, they would sit on a pile of cold ash. And again, they looked miserable, they looked unclean, and they would do this to publicly show their grief. And they would wail and mourn. That's what Mordecai is doing here. He doesn't hold back. We're beginning to see Mordecai making a change, even more, right? He's, he's standing out here. He's no longer cowering in the shadows in secrecy. He's no longer silently and privately numbered among God's people. He goes here from being silent to speaking, from being passive to being active. He's making progress, though he is living far away from God's people, far away from his place of worship. No praying, no scripture reading as far as we can see. He's just living among the pagans. Finally, Mordecai stands up and he steps out for God's people. He could have gone into hiding. Could have remained passive and timid, but he doesn't. He gets active here. Believers, have you been passive in your spiritual life as of late? There's a message for you here. Mordecai's been on the bench. Now he's running the race. He has been sidelined, and now he's making progress spiritually, and he is doing so, get this, publicly. Look at verse 2. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. You could not be sad before the king. That was a rule. Though Mordecai and all the Jewish people had a reason to be sad, right? They had been condemned to die. They were not allowed to be sad about it. Not before the king. The king only wanted happy people around him. He only wanted good news, not bad. And some of us, we can be like that, can't we? We don't like bad news. That's why we turn off the news. Because nothing but bad in the news, right? So we turn it off, we'll turn on the happy music, we'll, we'll, we'll put on a lighthearted comedy, bring on the clowns, right? Make us happy. So only good news and happy people are allowed in the presence of the king, past the king's gate. Notice here that Mordecai has gone as far as he could go, showing publicly how upset he is about this decree. And he was not the only one. Look at verse 3. We're told, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So notice here, the Jews are coming together during this trying and difficult time, showing publicly how upset they are by this ruling. God is at work here, uniting his people, isn't he? He's bringing them together during this very difficult season. When people go through hardship, we often see this happen. Charles Swindoll, in his book on Esther, when commenting on this verse, said, suffering never ruined a nation. Hardship doesn't fracture families. Affluence does. And I think we see that, right? There's something to that. It's very true. 
God often works through the storms of this life, and he works to bring his people together. And and notice we see them here do the first sort of quasi-semi-spiritual thing in the book here. We're told that they are fasting. But notice that prayer is, is curiously omitted from this. Oftentimes, when when fasting is mentioned, it's often coupled with prayer. It's not here. I think that's significant. These people are people we've talked about who need to be reoriented to God. They're still living away from God's people, away from His place of worship. Though they were commanded to return, they have not. But we see here, they're beginning to make a turn. They're, They're beginning to make progress. Now let's talk about Mordecai. Notice here, something changes in him. We saw glimpses of this last week, but we especially see it here this week. He's made a turn. He's making progress. And notice this. He starts. Where does he start? Right where he is. He starts at the king's gate, where he was day after day. But here on this day, we see Mordecai responding differently. Believers, that's where you need to start. If you have been sidelined spiritually, you need to get back in the race right where you are. You need to get active. You need to get moving, doing the next thing that God has called for you to do. Maybe you're not reading your Bible as you should. Start there. Get a good study Bible. Start reading it through day after day, a chapter a day. We've got some great study Bibles in our bookstore. Pick one up on your way out. Maybe you need to spend more time in in prayer, just praising God for how great He is and how great He's been to you. And you need to be confessing your sin and, and praying for others. Start there. Maybe you're not connected with God's people like you should. Start there. Get plugged in to a small group or a men's or women's Bible study. Maybe you're not serving as you should. Start there. Get plugged in right here and help us. Escort non-believers to Christ and establish believers in truth and equip believers for ministry. Mordecai made a turn. He got busy. He began to make progress for God, and he started right where he was. What about Esther? Well, let's talk about Esther. Notice Esther's growth in godliness. Esther here is given an opportunity in this chapter as well, to make a turn and make progress. Look at verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Now, notice here, Esther was clueless about what was going on. The reason why? It's because only shiny, happy people in the presence of the king. So she is completely clueless here about what's going on. But news got to her, she might have learned a little bit about what's going on. But she knows about what Mordecai is doing, and that is what gets her all stressed out and upset. And notice how she responds at first. Look at the end of verse 4. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. She knows that Mordecai mourning at the king's gate was dangerous for him to do. So what she tries to do is she tries to get him to back down, to cover up, go back into the shadows where he was before. And oftentimes, believers, I think we can be guilty of doing this as well, right? 
We need to be very, very careful that we're, we're not getting in the way of what God's trying to do through certain individuals. But she's in the way right now. But Mordecai is a changed man at this point. He refuses. He's not going to tone it down. He is not going to let up. He is letting the world know, along with his Jewish brothers and sisters everywhere, they are upset. Verse 5. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. She wants all the details. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So Esther sends one of her messengers out to Mordecai to get all the details. And notice the boldness of Mordecai here. He tells her messenger everything. All that has happened and how much Haman has promised to pay the king for the destruction of the Jews. And he even sends her a copy of the written decree that they sent out in Susa in modern day Iran, right? That's where Mordecai was living. So he sends a copy of this to her to show her this thing is serious and then notice what Mordecai does he orders the queen boy he's being bold even though that's his adopted daughter he orders the queen to act he tells Hathach explain the news to her and tell her what Haman's going to do that he's going to kill us all it is going to happen soon a date's been set tell her that and command her to go to the king beg his favor plead with him on behalf of our people he says tell Esther we need her now we need her to do something we need her to stand for us we need her to stand in the gap now up to this point remember Esther's been passive not active right She too has been silent. She's been in the shadows. She's silently lived among God's people and now she is living amongst the the pagan Persian people. And I'm sure at this point she is tempted to say, what am I supposed to do, right? I mean, this is much, much bigger than me. This is outside of my control. There is nothing I can do. Sometimes we feel that way, right? When times get tough, and there needs to be a response made by God's people. We reason in this way, and we just say, I'm just going to stand back and watch how this all plays out. And we remain quiet when we should be speaking. Our faith remains a private matter, and many of us, just to, we, we just continue to go with the proverbial flow. If this is you, listen, it's time for you to get active. That's God's word to his people. We're to be active in our faith. We're to be vocal for God. We're to stand up for him, stand up for his gospel, and stand on behalf of his people and shine his light into this dark and dead world. When tough times come, there is a response that needs to be made from God's people. 
But oftentimes we, we reason in this way. If this is you, listen, it's, it's time. It's time for you to get active. It's time for you to go public. It's time for, for you to speak. It's time for you to say something, do something, get moving for God and his gospel. That's what Mordecai is telling Esther to do here. But notice at first she wants to drag her feet. Look at verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days." So notice here, unlike some of the stories we hear about Esther and Ahasuerus or Xerxes, this is not a good relationship. This is not a fairy tale. This king was not a prince charming. Esther's not even for sure that she would not lose her life if she went into the presence of the king uninvited. Others would. See, in this day, the king of Persia did not like to be bothered while he sat up on his throne like a god. And anyone who went in to the king's presence uninvited, they could lose their life. I heard a story uh, recently, a pastor told about an archaeological dig where they, they found this ancient picture that, that showed this Persian king sitting on his throne. And behind him was a soldier with an enormous axe. Can you imagine that? You're like, I got to go see the king. I got I to go see him. And then you go in, see the guy with the axe, and you're like, no, nah, I can wait, you know, until I get an invite. I mean, that's not losing your head over, right? Not much is. Though it was an, a wrong approach, I, I bet it was effective. I bet the king wasn't bothered all that much. And the fact that Esther is, is not sure what would happen to her showed the kind of relationship she had with this king. So she tells Mordecai, I might not survive an encounter like that. The king has not called for me to come into his presence these 30 days. So she's still dragging her feet a bit, but things are about to change. Look at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. What a great response by Mordecai. He basically says, listen, the time to respond is right now. He says, don't think that if you remain quiet, you will escape any more than we will. If word gets out about your secret that you are a Jew, you may perish right alongside all of us. Then he says this in verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mark that. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mark that as well. We'll return to that in just a moment. So Mordecai gives this great response. And the question is, what's Esther going to do? Well, we learn here that Esther begins to make a turn. 
She begins to make progress. She makes major leaps in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go. So she's taking charge, right? She's given the orders. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. So Esther takes control here. She's giving orders for the Jews to be gathered together to once again do a semi-spiritual thing on her behalf. They, they, they call, she calls for a fast here. But notice once again, prayer is strangely omitted. I don't believe that's by accident, okay? They're, they're, we're dealing here with Jews in, in exile who have been living away from God's people, away from his place of worship in a pagan land mixed with, with a group of people who are, who are pagan and godless, and they've been commanded to return back toward Jerusalem, but they have not done so. But we see here they're beginning to make a turn, right? They're beginning to make changes. They're beginning to make progress and here we see that Esther is leading them to do just that she has them set apart to hold a fast on her behalf she also has a group of ladies who do the same thing notice here that Esther she's not acting on her own that's another thing I want you to notice here very very important Esther needs God's people for strength to do what God has called for her to do And we see this stressed over and over again throughout the Word of God. Believers, we are called to live out our Christian lives together. To grow in godliness, to be who God's called us to be, to stand strong, to step up and step out for Christ. We need one another to help us do that. To give us wisdom and direction and courage and comfort and strength. We're to do this together. That's the purpose of places like this, churches like this. You need one another. There's this lie today that says, I can be who God's called me to be without the church. The disciples and the apostles would have thought that was ridiculous. We're not to live our lives in isolation. We're to draw strength from one another and stand strong together. Notice what she says next. Look at verse 16. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Underline that. We're going to return to that. Verse 17. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Boy, Esther has changed here in a matter of moments, hasn't she? In a matter of moments, she's gone from cowering in the shadows, wanting to remain removed away in the palace, to saying, I'll go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. She's made a turn. She's making progress. Esther has moved from being fearful of losing her life to being willing to lay her life down for God's people. What has changed with her? Very simple. Her focus has changed from my will be done to thy will be done. Listen, you will not see major changes in your life for God unless your focus changes from what you want to what God wants. 
Let me repeat that. Write this down. Very important. You will not see major changes in your life for God unless your focus shifts from what you want to what God wants. And God's got to do that work because that's a heart condition. That's a heart issue. We need him to work. You need to pray that he work in your heart and life. That's my prayer for you as well. Very important. Esther's focus has shifted because she's got her mind off of what she wants and her will to what God's will is. And that's what changed her from saying, oh, I'm fearful I may lose my life to saying if I perish, I perish. And moving on, we're going to see a very, very different Esther for the rest of this book. Now, there are two very important statements here that I had you mark that I want to highlight from this chapter that are the most important in this book, and I want to end by looking at these. The first is from Mordecai, the second from Esther. The first comes in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai can see that Esther is a bit hesitant, and he says to her, look, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now, notice again, Mordecai doesn't say where that relief is going to come from. Most of the time, God's people will come right out and say, God's going to deliver us. Mordecai's not yet there, but he's, he's getting there. He basically says, I don't know how, I don't know when, but I believe we're going to be cared for and that relief is going to come for us no matter what. We're going to be saved. We're going to be spared. And, and he says it's going to come from another place. He's starting to show signs of faith. And I love this. He says, and who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, Esther and Mordecai had been raised in exile and they may have grown up hearing about this God of the Jews who used to be this great deliverer of God's people. Maybe they heard stories about him at work in, in Egypt. And, and notice here, it's as if Mordecai is saying, what if God is at work for us today? What if he has been at work for us this entire time in the background, in the shadows? What if he has allowed for you, Esther, to be in the place you're in, where you are, to be used at this time? What if you have come to the kingdom for a time such as this? Now that right there struck a chord with Esther and changed her focus. Then she follows with another great statement of faith she gives us one of the greatest examples of faith that we have in the old testament especially in this book she says i will go to the king though it is against the law and if i perish i perish esther finally gets it she comes out of the shadows and says i'm going to go before the king no matter what no matter what Persian law says, no matter if it costs me my own life, and she becomes a great mediator for God's people at the end of this book. And what happens when she goes before the king? We have to come back next week. We'll cover that, all right? Come back. It's going to be good. It's going to get even better. But let me end with this. We have said this already, but I want you to see this again. Esther is a type of Christ. 
What that means is, that doesn't mean she's exactly like him in every way, but there are elements of Esther's life that mirror Jesus. Notice here that a, a death sentence has been decreed for God's people, and they are in need of a mediator. We learn here that Esther is that mediator, and she's a good one. You know why? Because she's Jewish, but she's also the Persian queen. She is Jewish and she is Persian royalty. She has access to the Jewish people because she's Jewish and she has access to the king because she is the queen. Folks, we're in need of a mediator as well. And our problem is much, much worse than the Jewish people because though they were under the judgment of Haman, we're under the judgment of God. Though Haman wrongfully judged, God rightfully judges us. We all have a sentence of death on our life because of our sin. Like Mordecai did not bow down to Haman, we have not bowed down to God. And we, like the Jewish people, can do nothing to save ourselves. We cannot deliver ourselves. We are in need of a mediator, and we learn from God's word that we have one in Jesus Christ. And he is an awesome mediator because he has access to God because he is fully God, and he can per perfectly represent us because he is fully man. He has become one of us. But get this, he is the true and better mediator by far because though we deserve God's judgment for our sin, Jesus came down to us anyways. Even though we were sinners, he came and he died for us. Like we said last week in Romans 8, 32, God did not spare his son, but he gave him up for us. And get this, Jesus did not say, if I perish, I'll perish on behalf of my people. Jesus said, when I perish, I will perish for my people to save them. We'll learn in the weeks to come that Esther does not die though she puts her life on the line but Jesus does that's what he came to earth to do so that we through his life death and resurrection could be forgiven of sin and have life in him spiritually and one day physically even though we die Jesus is better he's better Though Esther identifies with her people by disclosing her race, Jesus identifies with us by joining our race. Esther had to come to King Xerxes on his throne in Susa. King Jesus got off his heavenly throne to come to us. Esther only had access to King Xerxes once. Jesus gives us constant access to God's throne of grace through his person and work forever. And you can be made right with God today. You can be at peace with him. You can be made right with him. Become a child of his if you would step off your throne and give your life up and over to King Jesus. Forsake your sin and make him your Lord and be saved. If you've never done that, now's the time. No better time than right now. I pray that you would. Let's pray.